We're going to pick up tonight in the book of Jeremiah. I fully expect to finish the book of Jeremiah tonight. Um, And just to remind you kind of where we are in the flow of the book, the last major section of Jeremiah is often referred to as the book of nations. All the way back in the first chapter of Jeremiah, we're told that Jeremiah will be a prophet unto the nations, but for the most part, as we follow his life, uh, he sticks to his people, the Judeans, and for the most part is in Judah, except for the last little bit in Egypt. Um, But all of the prophecies, all of the oracles that he gave concerning the nations are all collected at the end here. And so last week, we went through uh, quite a few different nations, the majority of them being uh, Judah's immediate neighbors. And we saw that on all of them was what uh, was going to come, what came upon Judah as well, namely God's judgment for their pride, idolatry, and injustice at the hand of God's instrument, Babylon. And so it's both uh, interesting, in some ways you could say that it is a fitting conclusion, in other ways you could say that it's a surprise ending, uh, that the final uh, nation that comes under God's judgment here uh, is Babylon itself. And this is not necessarily news in the book of Jeremiah. Many times we've been told that judgment is coming for Babylon, but here we have the longest and most thorough oracle uh, of its destruction. In fact, chapters 50 and 51, which make up the entire oracle about the judgment of Babylon, is almost as long as all of the other nations' oracles collected together. You know, we see a similar approach uh, in one of the minor prophets, Uh, where he really wants to talk to Judeans about the judgment that's coming upon them, but he begins with woes on the other nations. He draws in the attention of his audience. He gets them nodding along, and then he drops the bomb that it's also woe to Israel and Judea. And so in the same way here, there is this kind of fitting capstone conclusion. Now, All of the other nations that fall under God's judgment involve things that tarnish the potential for people to image God. Specifically in two different ways, one of them being injustice, which is where people who God created to reflect his image are in some way hindered from doing so through, uh, through the overpowered uh, rulers who take advantage of them. And the other is idolatry. And idolatry is when somebody doesn't take on the image of God but takes for themselves the title of God. Uh, and they see themselves in that way. Um, and so that's been present in all of them But there's an additional factor uh, that comes to play in Babylon, uh, which is although God used Babylon as an instrument of his justice, they were also a tremendously cruel people and were not operating as God's instrument of justice for God's sake, but as their own, you know, muscle-flexing, self-aggrandizing world power. 
And so this judgment is especially important as it concerns God's justice on the cruelties of empire. In fact, and I'll come back to this a little bit later, there's reason to believe that although Jeremiah is talking to the nation of Babylon here, he seems to look through Babylon to something bigger and greater than the Babylon that we've been talking about, than the one that's headed by Nebuchadnezzar. I'll show you what I mean in a little bit, but let's open up here in verse 1. The word that the Lord spoke concerning Babylon concerning the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare among the nations and proclaim. Set up a banner and proclaim. Conceal it not and say, Babylon is taken. Bel is put to shame. Merodach is dismayed. Her images are put to shame. Her idols are dismayed. So notice two things here. Notice that this proclamation is to be proclaimed among the nations. And remember that each and every one of these nations, as we've seen in the preceding chapters, are currently under the thumb of Babylon. And so effectively, the message that follows is not just a message of judgment, but a message of deliverance, impending deliverance from this wicked superpower. The second thing, notice it says, don't conceal it. Now, there's two possibilities here. One is that it would be tempted to whisper about the downfall of Babylon so that you weren't seen as an enemy of the state. We've seen similar problems in the book of Jeremiah already. Um, But also, this word to conceal has the idea to not just hide, but to save for later. So, for example, you may remember in the book of Daniel, Daniel is told that some of his prophecies he's to seal up because the time for their fulfillment is not yet. In other words, he's supposed to preserve them, because the generation that will need them will need to have a copy of them. Whereas, when you read the book of Revelation, it says near the end that these prophecies that were given to John on Patmos are not to be sealed, because the coming of Jesus is near. And so the idea here of concealing may be, again, about the imminency of God showing up and bringing deliverance from Babylon. The second thing that I want you to notice here is the first kind of, uh, the first criticism brought against Babylon, the first um, accusation made against Babylon is about their worship. The gods Bel and the gods Merodach are major gods in the Babylonian pantheon. In fact, scholars have often found it interesting that exile to Babylon was God's tool to judge Judah for their idolatry, considering Babylon was the center of idolatry in the ancient world, uh, one that was tremendously religious and filled with, with the images and idols and statues of the gods that they worshipped. Verse 3, For out of the north a nation has come against her. Now notice, if you can remember all the way back, Jeremiah's first announcement about impending destruction was a pot from the north overturned and boiling water flowing over Israel and Judah. And so from that beginning, before Babylon is named, before King Nebuchadnezzar is named, they're uh, expecting a threat from the north. 
In the same way here, that imagery is drawn now, so Babylon is threatened from the north. Now, you may not remember this, but it was interesting that Jeremiah identifies a threat from the north because Babylon is not north of Judea at all, but to the east. However, what you do have to the east between Babylon and Judea is a large desert wilderness area. And so when Babylon did come in, they came up and over through Damascus and down from the north in the same way. When Babylon does experience its judgment, it comes from the Persians. Persia is not north of Babylon, but to the east. But because of the nature of the campaign, they again ended up setting in from the north side. And so there's a little bit, just like there was in the beginning chapters of Jeremiah, a little bit of a mystery here. We don't have all the details. We just know it's a threat from the north. It says, A nation shall come up against her, which shall make her land a desolation, and none shall dwell in it. Both man and beast shall flee away. And so what's envisioned here is total destruction, right? The sacking of Babylon. Continuing in verse 4, In those days, and in that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together, weeping as they come, and they shall seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with faces turned towards it, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. And so now it turns to some of the occupants of Babylon who have just been delivered, and notice they're not just free to leave, they're free of something else as well this stubborn, relentless resistance against God's will. What we read about here is not just a return, but a repentance of Judah. And not just Judah, but notice we see a joining of Judah and Israel. Israel had already been removed from the land a hundred years prior to the life of Jeremiah by the Assyrians. But here there is somewhat of a national repentance and return. In fact, you may remember that it's the words of the book of Jeremiah that Daniel is reading when he starts to express his own national repentance, speaking for all his people in the book of Daniel, knowing that the time is coming near. And so what's envisioned here is not just, again, a return to the land, but a return to God himself. Let us enter into everlasting covenant. Verse 6, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds, speaking of their kings, their priests, and their prophets, have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. All who found them have devoured them, and their enemies have said, We're not guilty, for they sinned against the Lord, their habitation of righteousness, the Lord, the hope of their fathers. And so notice here, the shepherds fail, and then in come the predators, and the predators justify themselves for being the instrument of the Lord. They say, we haven't sinned against Israel, we just did what they deserved because they had forsaken the Lord. Now, it's one thing to say that the devil made me do it, right? And all you have to do is go back to Genesis chapter 3 to see that that doesn't really parse out. Whatever it means that the serpent came to Eve, the serpent experiences consequences for that reality. Cursed shall you be, on your stomach you shall go and eat dust the rest of the days of your life. Even that serpent couldn't say the devil made me do it. 
Um, in the same way here, in, in fact, in some of a worse way, Babylon can't justify their own behavior because they were the instrument of God. They can't say, well, we were just doing the Lord's will. There is a difference between uh, the, uh, the calling of the Lord and the ways of the Lord. There's a difference between being used by God in the way uh, you know, that a, a brilliant chess strategist can manipulate his opponent, opponent's own moves to his advantage and to be used by God as being a player on his team surrendered to his will. In fact, one of the great earmarks of God's both his goodness and his sovereignty is the ability to accomplish what Joseph recognizes. Right? Joseph's life is full of evil, and that evil does directly lead to the fulfillment of God's will for Joseph's life. How is it that Joseph finds himself being the right-hand man in Egypt, in the right place to deliver his own family from famine? Through a line of unfortuitous and even awful stories that happened to him personally. But he gets the balance right in the end. He says, what you, brothers, have meant for evil, God has meant for good. Or, to take another example, consider Peter addressing his own people after the day of Pentecost, speaking filled with the Holy Spirit about the crucifixion of Jesus, and he says, who you have killed with sinful hands according to the foreordained plan of God. Their wickedness... God's goodness, both coexisting, both overlapping. But of course, neither of those people, neither Joseph's brothers could say, I knew we made the right decision and were righteous. Nor could the people of Israel excuse themselves from the blood of Jesus in the days of Pentecost. Uh, in the same way here, Babylon can't have an excuse because God has used uh, what truly was their awful and horrible ambition to dominate the world. Verse 8, flee from the midst of Babylon and go out of the land of the Chaldeans and be as male goats before the flock. For behold, I'm stirring up and bringing against Babylon a gathering of great nations from the north country, and they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be taken. Their arrows are like a skilled warrior who does not return empty-handed. Now notice there it speaks of the uh, vengeance that's to come on Babylon being at the hand of the nations, plural. And how that happens is basically the Medes and the Persians join forces and take the small groups of people they have conquered and collected, including the Elamites, who we mentioned just last week. If you don't remember, the Elamites were the one nation in the Book of Nations that doesn't really belong because they're not one of Judah's neighbors. In fact, it's very unlikely that the people of Jeremiah's time were familiar with the Elamites as all, at, at, at all because they were even east of Babylon. But they were conquered by Babylon. And then they did join forces with the Medo-Persians and became a significant part of their army, specifically as their archers. And so if you go back and you read about the Elamites, it will, rec, uh, uh, it will mention their archers by name. And here, in the vengeance that comes upon Babylon, we see those archers again. Uh, and so we're told here, their arrows are like a skilled warrior who does not return empty-handed. Chaldea shall be plundered. All who plunder her shall be sated, declares the Lord. Though you rejoice, though you exult, O plunderers of my heritage, 
Though you frolic like a heifer in the pasture and neigh like the stallions. Okay, so he says you may have had victory over Israel. And notice he calls the Judeans here my heritage, right? My inheritance. He says you've messed with what's mine. And again, there's a little bit of tension here, isn't there? Because they've messed with what's mine, and God said it was going to happen, and even anointed them to accomplish that. But he's capable of being both. He says in verse 12, Your mother shall be utterly shamed, and she who bore you shall be disgraced. Behold, she shall be the last of the nations, a wilderness, a dry land, and a desert. Because of the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited, but shall be an utter desolation. Okay, now notice two things again. First, notice that just like we saw earlier, the destruction that's envisioned here is total. And not just uh, a single sacking, but a, uh, an artifact of desolation, right? A continuing uninhabited place. The second thing I want you to notice is that the language here is very similar to the language that was used of Judea. Remember, it was Judea that was going to be an utter desolation. In fact, listen to this line at the second half of verse 13. Everyone who passes by Babylon shall be appalled and hiss because of all her wounds. That's almost word for word what Jeremiah said would happen to Judea. And now it is reflecting here on Babylon. Verse 14, set yourselves in array against Babylon all around, all you who bend the bow. Shoot at her, spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Raise a shout against her all around. She has surrendered. Her bulwarks have fallen. Her walls are thrown down. For this is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her. Do to her as she has done. One of the, one of the things that Jesus says to his disciples is that the one who lives by the sword will die by the sword. There's an eye for an eye. There's a... Uh, proportionate response. There's an every action leads to an equal and opposite reaction that we see throughout the Bible in these things. And so here, the conqueror becomes conquered. Verse 16, cut off from Babylon the sower and the one who handles the sickle in times of harvest, because the sword of the oppressor, everyone shall turn to his own people and everyone shall flee to his own land. Israel is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. First, the king of Assyria devoured him, and now at last Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has gnawed his bones. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing punishment on the king of Babylon and his land, as I punished the king of Assyria. I will restore to Israel his pastures, and he shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan, and his desire shall be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and Gilead." Now notice here is a comparison. He says, in the same way that I brought judgment on Assyria, so you can be assured I will do so to Babylon. But that's a little bit interesting because how is it that God brought justice back on Assyria that had sacked the northern tribes, the tribes of Israel, and taken them away with Babylon? It's Babylon who had put Assyria down. But he says, in the same way that I was faithful to finish them for their injustice, so also... I will take care of the tool of their justice. And so he speaks here again of restoration to Israel to the land. Verse 20, in those days and in that time, declares the Lord, iniquity shall be sought in Israel and there shall be none. 
and sin in Judah, and none shall be found, for I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. And Jeremiah has spoken many times that those who return to Judea will be the remnant, both a positive, not completely wiped out, and a negative, merely a scrap of what Judah used to be. But notice here they will come as a forgiven people. Their sins will be set aside and they will be restored. Verse 21, go up against the land of Merathame and against the inhabitants of Pecod. Kill and devote them to destruction, declares the Lord, and do all that I have commanded you. And so again, we see here God engaging with the armies who are judging Babylon and bringing consequence here. Verse 22, the noise of battle, battle is in the land and great destruction, how the hammer of the whole earth is cut down and broken, how Babylon has become a horror among the nations. I set a snare for you, and you were taken, O Babylon, and you did not know it. You were found and caught because you opposed the Lord. The Lord has opened his armory and brought out the weapons of his wrath, for the Lord God of hosts has a work to do in the land of the Chaldeans." Come against her from every quarter, open her granaries, pile her up like heaps of grain and devoted to destruction. Let nothing be left to her. Kill all her bulls. Let them go down to the slaughter. Woe to them, for their day has come, the time of their punishment. A voice. They flee and escape from the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, vengeance for his temple. So this voice that we see here crying out, is the carrier of good news. Now, a lot of times when we talk about a gospel message, we think of Christ died for sinners of whom I am chief. And that's absolutely right. That's the way the word's used in the New Testament. But it's a borrowed word. It's one that's taken both from the Roman Empire and we also find it in the book of Isaiah. And there it refers to those who bring good news of a deliverer. Okay. This is closer to when, uh, when Constantine, against the parallel generals of the um, triumvirate left behind in the Roman Empire, comes in and conquers one and sets free a people from the evil emperor. In the same way, this voice comes here declaring the good news of deliverance from an oppressive power. Verse 29, summon archers against Babylon, all those who bend the bow, encamp around her and let no one escape. Repay her according to her deeds, do to her according to all that she's done, for she proudly defied the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, all her young men shall fall in her squares, and all her soldiers shall be destroyed on that day, declares the Lord. Okay, so we've seen a complete destruction of its wealth, a complete destruction of its cities, and now we see a complete destruction of its armies. Verse 31, Behold, I'm against you, O proud one, declares the Lord God of hosts. Just as we saw with the other nations, pride is one of the great accusations that God makes about Babylon here. He says, For your day has come, the time when I will punish you. The proud one shall stumble and fall with none to raise him up, and I will kindle a fire in his cities, and it will devour all that is around him. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the people of Israel are oppressed, and the people of Judah with them. All who took them captive have held them fast. They refuse to let them go. Their redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will surely plead their cause. 
that he may give rest to the earth, but unrest to the inhabitants of Babylon. Now, notice that little phrase there, plead their cause. Uh, That's legal language, right? Basically, God is saying that he is going to be an advocate for Judea. He's going to be a defending attorney, if you will. And that's very, very striking because more than once in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah has used legal imagery, but instead he has been the prosecuting attorney against Judea. I'll show you just one example. Turn all the way back to chapter 2 and look at verse 9. Here, God speaking of all the sins of Judea says, Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. The word there of contending is also legal language, but again, not for a defense, but for a prosecution. And so, in the beginning of Jeremiah, Jeremiah uses language of God dragging Judea to court to get justice for what he is owed. But here we see him stepping in and interceding for Judea to protect them from their oppressor. And so we can see the status of Judea has changed uh, through their repentance and forgiveness. So going back to Chapter 50, picking up in verse 35, a sword against the Chaldeans, declares the Lord, and against the inhabitants of Babylon, against her officials and her wise men, a sword against the diviners, that they may become fools, a sword against her warriors, that they may be destroyed, a sword against her horses and against her chariots and all the foreign troops in her midst, that they may become women." A sword against all her treasures, that they may be plundered. A drought against her waters, that they may be dried up. For it is a land of images, and they are mad over idols. What's interesting to me about this oracle against Babylon is uh, the fact that we could stop right there and feel like it had been thorough. But we're only a third of the way through. And again, it's worth remembering that the original readers of these chapters would have been Judeans living out their life, their 70-year sentence in Babylon awaiting deliverance. And so I think one of the reasons why the length is laid out here is because it's something that would be meditated on. Think of... um, Think of those who are slain in Revelation chapter 6. We're told that they are under the throne of God crying out, How long, O Lord, until you bring justice upon those who have killed us? And God speaks to them and he says, Be patient. It won't be until the number is full. It won't be until all who will be killed have been killed and then justice will come. I don't think we always understand that posture, that position. I think we rarely read the judgment of the Bible uh, and feel the need for deliverance from oppressors and empires. In fact, in American history, if anything, we need to be much more prone wondering where this judgment touches our own nation and our own concerns, because we are the definitive superpower 
in our world as it is. Now, that doesn't make us innately or inherently wicked, but it makes the possibility of such very possible. But I think oftentimes we don't resonate with that, and so we may be burned out on judgment at this point, but that's not because, or that's because we don't read this as being a message of hope, which is what it is. An answer to the how along, O Lord, right, um, of those who were experiencing oppression. Continuing here in verse 39, therefore wild beasts shall dwell with hyenas in Babylon, and ostriches shall dwell in her. She shall never again have people, nor be inhabited for all generations. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities, declares the Lord, so no man shall dwell there, and no man shall sojourn in her. And so the idea here is not just of total destruction, but permanent inoccupation. In comparison is made here to Sodom and Gomorrah. And most biblical scholars believe that if we were to find even the desolate remnants of Sodom and Gomorrah, we'd have to dig under the Dead Sea to do so. It is really, truly a place that has never again been inhabited. Um, and then verse 41, Behold, a people comes from the north, a mighty nation, and many kings are stirring from the farthest part of the earth. They lay hold of the bow and the spear, they're cruel and they have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring of the sea. They ride on horses, arrayed as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Babylon. The king of Babylon heard the report of them and his hand fell helpless. Anguish seized him, pain as a woman in labor. Now remember here, at least in the way that this is envisioned, if this is Nebuchadnezzar we're talking about, Nebuchadnezzar is no pushover. Um, uh, if if you've ever seen the portrayal of Nebuchadnezzar in 300, he's just a vicious-looking individual, and they really get it right. Um, but the idea here is that what God is going to do is just going to lead to a complete fainting of heart, a total surrendering of the will, uh, losing the, the desire to fight entirely. Verse 44, Behold, like a lion coming up from the thicket of the Jordan against perennial pasture, I will suddenly make them run away from her and will point over her whomever I choose. For who is like me? Who will summon me? What shepherd can stand before me? You see, this is the one thing that empires forget. They forget that their destiny is limited in its time. That as Paul says uh, when he's addressing the people at the area of in Athens, that God has appointed the times, seasons, and places, the boundaries for the nations. And if you look in the book of Daniel, you get how this operates, right? Because Daniel begins with a vision of the Babylonian Empire, but he sees it being replaced by the Medo-Persians, and then them being replaced by Greece, and then them being replaced by Rome. And ultimately, albeit somewhat understandably, since Rome reigned as a single empire for almost a thousand years, ultimately Rome came to the place where they saw themselves as the undefeatable power, the only inevitable reality in the world. But that's the mistake that all of these empires make. And God here speaks up and he says, you've forgotten that I'm the one in control, that I'm the one in charge he says, what shepherd can stand before me? Verse 45, therefore hear the plan that the Lord has made against Babylon and the purpose that he has formed against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely the little ones of their flock shall be dragged away. 
Surely their fold shall be appalled at their fate. Now, notice there's a subtle little play on the metaphor here. They think they are the shepherds, but they're just the sheep, right? That's how vulnerable they really are. They think they're the powerful protectors of their people, but they're just as vulnerable as livestock. Verse 46, at the sound of the capture of Babylon, the earth shall tremble, and her cry shall be heard among the nations. Chapter 51, thus says the Lord, behold, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon, against the inhabitants of Lebkamai. And I will send to Babylon winnowers, and they shall winnow her, and they shall empty her land. And when they come against her from every side on the day of trouble, let not the archer bend his bow, and let him not stand up in his armor. Spare not her young men, devote to destruction all her army. They shall fall down slain in the land of the Chaldeans and the wounded in her streets for Israel and Judah have not been forsaken by their God, the Lord of hosts. So the first mistake that Babylon makes, as we saw earlier, is thinking that they are justified because they accomplish God's judgment. The second one they make is that they're invincible because they're the modern superpower. And the third one they make is that God has forsaken Israel and has no longer any plans for them. But the land of the Chaldeans is full of guilt against the Holy One of Israel. And so for these things, God will bring judgment. Verse 6, flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment he is rendering her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. Now notice, this is the first time in the oracle against Babylon where we've explicitly encountered God's involvement in their, up, uh, in their uprising, right? Here he says they really were a golden cup to make the nations drunk. Remember, that was one of Jeremiah's primary images for what Babylon was doing. He was going to turn the entire world into a drunken, destructive mess. Therefore, it says, the nations went mad. Suddenly Babylon has fallen and been broken wail for her, take balm for her pain, perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she was not healed. Again, this language we saw of Judea earlier, they were the ones, even with the balm of Gilead, who could not be healed. But here it's applied to Babylon, forsake her and let us go each to his own country, for her judgment has reached up to heaven and has been lifted up even to the skies. The Lord has brought about our vindication Come, let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. Continuing here in verse 11, sharpen the arrows, take up the shields. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes. Okay, so now it's not just this power from the north, but the Medo-Persians are mentioned by name. Okay, because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it, for that is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. Set up a standard against the walls of Babylon. Make the watch strong. Set up watchmen. Prepare the ambushes. For the Lord has both planned and done what he spoke concerning the inhabitants of Babylon. O you who dwell by many waters, rich in treasures, your end has come. The thread of your life is cut. The Lord of the hosts has sworn by himself, surely I will fill you with men as many as locusts, and they shall raise the shout of victory over you. And so this fresh oracle that begins in verse 11 is much more of the same, although the Medes are named. And then the other thing is the vengeance here is listed as being vengeance 
uh, for God's temple. Remember, Babylon had destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. But it is also interesting that there is a direct correlation between the defeat that happens at the uh, hands of the Medes and Babylon's handling of the temple. You may remember that the king of Babylon summons for the, um, the cups and the bowls of the temple that have been in storage for almost 70 years and brings them out to use as party favors at a party that he has. And that's when a hand is seen writing on the wall, mine, mine, tekel, ufarsen, and Daniel is called to interpret. And on that very night, the Medes break through the city and the end of Babylon's reign comes. But it is directly tied to their treatment of God's things in the temple, which are holy and set apart to the only living God and they use as a manifestation of their own glory. Okay? If they drink out of God's cups, what are they saying? They are the conquerors. This is mine now. This is our victory that we celebrate tonight. Now, something interesting happens here in verses 15 through 19. And that's that this passage is word for word juxtaposed from another place in the book of Jeremiah. What we read here in verses 15 through 19 are taken from chapter 10, verses 12 through 16. But there, they're not used of Babylon, but used of Israel. Okay, so let's read it in this context, and then we can compare Verse 15, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Now, if you go back and read Jeremiah chapter 10, in that context, God is defending himself as being unique among the false gods that Judea is worshiping. Here, he does the same thing, but now he's addressing Babylon and their false gods that they worship. But the parallel, again, is striking, because remember, as we've seen, God's ultimate plan for Israel over the course of this relocation to Babylon uh, is one that is like cleansing. And so as they move through this, they're no longer liable or under the thumb uh, of this idolatrous practice. In fact, it's during Babylon that uh, the, the practice of the, the synagogue begins. Uh, it, it's here where Israel learns how to be a distinct people, not in their own nations, which has continued to sustain them as a people, even to our own day. Verse 20, you are my hammer and weapon of war. With you, I break nations in pieces. With you, I destroy kingdoms. 
With you I break in pieces the horse and his rider. With you I break in pieces the chariot and the charioteer. With you I break in pieces man and woman. With you I break in pieces the old man and the young. With you I break in pieces the young man and the young woman. With you I break in pieces the shepherd and the flock. With you I break in pieces the farmer and his team. With you I break in pieces governors and commanders. I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea before your very eyes for all the evil that they've done in Zion, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. The Hebrew there is difficult. Like the, the thing that commentators always turn to in this passage, because a destroying mountain is a hard thing to wrap our head around, is maybe something volcanic, right? Because what else does it mean to make a mountain an offensive weapon? Right, um, But here, God says, I'm against the destroying mountain. In fact, notice, I'll stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. Okay, again, the imagery is hard to wrap our head around. Now it's as if Babylon is king of the hill, to use our own modern illustration. And God just says, I'm going to roll you down. You know, just, just like Jack, who fell down and broke his crown and rolled all the way to the bottom of the hill, so it's going to be from Babylon. Verse 26, no stone shall be taken from you for a corner and no stone for a foundation. You shall be a perpetual waste, declares the Lord. In other words, the devastation will be so significant, there will be no reclamation, right? There will be no uh, taking the pieces that made their buildings and building new buildings, Set up a standard on the earth. Blow the trumpets among the nations. Prepare the nations for war against her. Summon against her the kingdoms. Ariat, many, Ashkenaz. Appoint a marshal against her. Bring up horses like bristling locusts. Prepare the nations for war against her. The king of the Medes, with the governors and deputies and every land under their dominion. The land trembles and writhes in pain for the Lord's purpose against Babylon stands to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitant. The warriors of Babylon have ceased fighting. They remain in their strongholds. Their strength has failed. They have become women. Her dwellings are on fire. Her bars are broken. One runner runs to meet another, and one messenger to meet another to tell the king of Babylon that the city is taken on every side. The fords have been seized. The marshes are burned with fire, which I assume is a difficult thing to do since marshes are very wet places. The soldiers are in panic, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, the daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor at the time when it is trodden, yet a little while, and the time of harvest will come. And so he says, remember the way that harvest works. When you take the wheat and you trample it beneath the feet, whether of humans or of cows, uh, and separate the wheat from the chaff. And he says, harvest is just around the corner for Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar in verse 34 is named by name. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He's crushed me. He's made me an empty vessel. He's swallowed me like a monster. He's filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has rinsed me out. The violence done to me and to my kinsmen be upon Babylon. Let the inhabitants of Zion say. And so here he says, go ahead, Zionites, go ahead, Judeans, speak and recognize the monstrous, even the bestial behavior 
of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Now, that's interesting for two reasons. One, because you may remember Nebuchadnezzar in a moment of pride in the book of Daniel is reduced to a beast-like state, right, and spends seven times, whether that's seven days or seven weeks or seven years, we don't know, out amidst the animals with his fingernails growing long, feeding on the grass like the cow, right, until his mind is given back to him. But the second reason it's interesting is because this is the primary type of imagery that's used for empires, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New, beastly imagery, right? Leopards and bears and dragons and lions. And here that imagery is spoken by the Judeans. And then my blood be on the inhabitants of Chaldea, let Jerusalem say. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will plead your cause and take up vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea and make her fountain dry, and Babylon shall become a heap of ruins, the haunt of jackals, a horror and a hissing without inhabitants. They shall roar together like lions, they shall growl like lions' cubs. While they are inflamed, I will prepare them a feast and make them drunk, that they may become merry, then sleep a perpetual sleep, and not wake, declares the Lord." I'll bring them down like lambs to the slaughter, like rams and male goats. Now, that last verse there, verse 40, makes what happens to Babylon semi-sacred, right? Semi-sacred in the sense that the idea here of lambs and sheep, or rams and male goats being led to the slaughter, those are sacrificial animals. This is not like a lamb led to the butcher, right? This is like a sacrifice led to the altar. And it's not the first time that we've encountered sacred imagery. You may have noticed a couple of times it talked about devoting Babylon to destruction. That's the idea going all the way back to the conquering of Joshua of what belongs to God, right? And so here he claims the judgment on Babylon for himself, how Babylon is taken, verse 41, the praise of the whole earth seized, how Babylon has become a horror among the nations. So she was the pride of the nations, even if it was a jealous pride, the glory of the nations, and now she's become a horror. The sea has come upon Babylon. She's covered with a tumultuous wave. Her cities have become a horror, a land of drought and a desert, a land in which no one dwells, in which no son of man passes. And I will punish Bel in Babylon and take out of his mouth what he has swallowed. The nation shall no longer flow to him. The wall of Babylon has fallen. You may remember that Judea wasn't the only nation that was promised that after the reign of Babylon, they would be sent back to their land and resettle. And I love the imagery here. It's as if, uh, you know, um, Babylon has been a bad dog and ate something valuable, right? And so the master reaches down and makes him vomit up what doesn't belong to him. He says, I'm going to take care of that. Verse 45, go out in the midst of her, my people. Let everyone save his life from the fierce anger of the Lord. Let not your heart faint and not be fearful at the report heard on the land. Report comes in one year and afterward a report in another year and violence is in the land and ruler against ruler. And so he says, don't worry about the stuff that happens in the interim. The language of Jeremiah here is similar to the, uh, the warning that Jesus gives us when he says, when you hear about wars and rumors of wars, the time is not yet. That's a, a, false, a false indication. 
but it's also not an indication of the end of all things, right? Jesus is not saying, my coming is not yet. He's also saying the end of the world is not yet. So to a degree, he's saying to his followers, don't worry. It's not the end of the world yet. In the same way here, Jeremiah speaks to his people and he says, don't worry. God's plan will sustain. And it may be that there's a greater darkness before the dawn. It may be that there's confusion before the victory but it will come, verse 47, therefore behold the days are coming when I will punish the images of Babylon and her whole land shall be put to shame and her slain shall fall in the midst of her. Then the heavens and the earth and all that's in them shall sing for joy over Babylon for the destroyer shall come against them out of the north, declares the Lord. Babylon must fall for the slain of Israel. Just as for Babylon have fallen the slain of the earth. Again, see the proportionate and just response. When God says here that Babylon must fall, it must because God's character is justice. And justice will eventually be done. Verse 50, you who have escaped from the sword, do, uh, go, do not stand still. Remember the Lord from far away and let Jerusalem come to mind. We're put to shame for we've heard reproach. Dishonor has covered our face, for foreigners have come into the holy places of the Lord's house. Okay, And so here, it's speaking to the remnant who have survived the destruction of Jerusalem. And it says, it says, go, flee Jerusalem. You did that already. Be away. Foreigners have come. The temple has been conquered. That happened, but verse 52, therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will execute judgment upon her images, Babylon's, and through all her land the wounded shall groan. Though Babylon should mount up to heaven, though she should fortify her strong height, yet destroyers would come from me against her, declares the Lord. Okay, now this language we've seen in terms of Edom, right? Though you build your refuge on the highest mountain, I will bring you down. A voice verse 54 a cry from Babylon the noise of great destruction from the land of the Chaldeans for the Lord is laying Babylon waste and stilling her mighty voice their waves roar like many waters the noise of a voice is raised for the destroyer has come upon her upon Babylon her warriors are taken their bows are broken in pieces for the Lord is a God of recompense he will surely repay you may remember in Isaiah, he speaks of a time of peace coming when the nations will beat right, their spears into plowshares and will no longer study war. One of the things that's easy to forget as we look on to that peace is that it comes with the destruction of the need for self-defense because the powers, the evil, the wicked, those who seek to rule the world, the conquerors, have been put down, and so the weapons are not just no longer appropriate, but also no longer necessary. And we can see that a little bit clearer here in, uh, in Babylon uh, and in the destruction he promises here. It's a breaking of their bows, right? Um, I love how Job talks about the oppressor. He says he did not fail to break the teeth of the oppressor. He says here, verse 57, I will make drunk her officials and her wise men, her governors, her commanders, and her warriors. They shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not wake, declares the king. 
whose name is the Lord of hosts. And so again, in the final closing verses, as we saw in many of the earlier judgments, God here takes the title of king solely for himself. King Nebuchadnezzar has nothing on the king, the king of kings. Verse 58, thus says the Lord of hosts, the broad wall of Babylon shall be leveled to the ground and her high gates shall be burned with fire. The peoples labor for nothing and the nations weary themselves only for fire. The word, uh, let's see, I think that's a good place to stop before we move forward. So here's the thing about this whole passage. As we've seen, it's tremendously thorough, uh, exhaustive even. Every soldier destroyed, every building demolished, every foundation overturned, all that's left is a wilderness, no people. The problem is, when you look at the Medo-Persian conquering Babylon, that's just not what happened. It wasn't a long-standing war and a destruction. It was a quiet surrender. In fact, the city of Babylon, where Nebuchadnezzar dwelled, it wasn't destroyed at all. And the Medio Persian Empire didn't just conquer Babylon and leave it all empty. They just took it over and just inhabited it. And behind them, Greece. And behind Greece, Rome. And so it may be here that Jeremiah, like I said, is looking through Babylon, not so much at this current iteration of it, at least not in all places. Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned by name. Um, So are the walls of Babylon, which were significant in those days. Um, But we have good reason to believe that it's right to read this as looking through uh, to, to not the empire of Babylon, but the spirit of empire that continues to move through the world. In fact, I have very little doubt in my mind that this is why Babylon still has a part to play in the book of Revelation. Because whatever John means there, he doesn't mean this Babylon. This Babylon is long gone before John's even born. So why does he choose Babylon? Why does he use that name for the empire? Is it really just because he thinks it's Rome, but he doesn't want to say so? He's already been banished by Rome. Rome's already tried to put him to death. He has no reason to hide that interpretation. But I would suggest instead there's something that runs through both of those empires. There's something that he foresees and Babylon becomes the definitive in the same way that we naturally and rightly make a connection not just between this Babylon and Rome, but this Babylon and Babel at the very beginning. There's the thread that runs the whole way through. In fact, what I'd like to do before we move any further is I'd like to turn to Revelation 18 and read it, and I want you to see how connected it is to what we've just read tonight. For the most part, I'm just going to read it without comment, but watch for the language that John has clearly borrowed from what we've been reading tonight. And listen to the similarities with the Babylon, this ultimate and final Babylon, uh, and, and the one we've been reading about. Chapter 18, verse 1, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, 
a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of her passions, of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice saying, Come out from her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit, as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see, for this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, and all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, Cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud, alas, Alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, the sailors and those whose trade is on the sea stood far off, and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, What city was like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of the harpist And musicians and flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Last few verses here in 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud, of a vo- uh, the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of her servants. 
Once more, they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And so there's still a work to be done. There's still justice awaiting. There's still oppression to be dealt with. But it will be dealt with. Verse 59. The word that Jeremiah the prophet commanded Sariah, the son of Neriah, the son of Mahesiah, when they went with Zedekiah, the king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign. Okay, so now suddenly we step back a little bit. You know, it wasn't until uh, many years after this that Babylon came in and sacked Zedekiah and put out his eyes and took him off the throne. But for some reason here, we see Zedekiah making a pilgrimage to Babylon. Now, um, remember that Zedekiah was appointed by Babylon as a puppet king, as a vassal of the Babylonian Empire. And the reason he's eventually destroyed is because he rebelliously tries to resist them. Um, But here he goes to visit Babylon. In verse 60, uh, Jeremiah writes, Jeremiah wrote in a book all the disaster that should come upon Babylon, all these words that are written concerning Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, when you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words. Which is intense. Basically says, hey, since you're going with Zedekiah, who's going to go, you know, pay homage to Babylon, carry this book for me, all about Babylon's destruction, and walk around the streets yelling it out for me. And again, notice the timeline. This tells us that everything we've read here was already published by Jeremiah and even known to Babylon before the destruction of Jerusalem. And so, Sariah carries out this commission, verse 62, say, O Lord, you've said concerning this place that you will cut it off so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be desolate forever. When you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates and say, thus shall Babylon sink. Sound familiar? Right? That's just like what the angel does in uh, Revelation 18. Thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I'm bringing upon her and they shall become exhausted. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. Now, obviously, that last sentence there operates as the conclusion of the actual speaking words of the book of Jeremiah. In fact, it is kind of the final conclusion of the book. In the same way that the book opened with the words of Jeremiah, the prophet, the son of so-and-so, here it closes. In fact, what we get in chapter 52 uh, are not words that were written by Jeremiah or by Baruch at all, but are actually just 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25, uh, slightly edited for its own purposes and placed here as an appendix. Because remember, although we have the whole Bible bound together, originally they were separate works. And so as this book goes out into Babylon, being read by a people who have been sacked by Babylon and awaiting the fulfillment, here a piece of the historical records of the Judean royal household, which also make up 2 Kings, are grafted in here so that they can reflect on a couple of things. Now, interestingly, like I said, this is pretty close to the exact same passage that we have in 2 Kings with a couple of minor changes, some things that have been cut out and other things that have been added, and one numerical discrepancy, which is actually pretty easy to understand. 
Um, but let's just go ahead and read through it. And remember, our goal tonight uh, is primarily to say, okay, so why is this here? Why did uh, the editor of Jeremiah, again, probably Baruch, why did he want to conclude here? Why doesn't he just stop thus far are the words of Jeremiah and let the book end? Okay. Now, that's always a good question to ask with epilogues uh, because I generally hate epilogues. I think... I think Lord of the Rings should end at Mount Doom with the ring destroyed. I don't need to hear about the minor skirmishes of hobbits back home. It's a, it's a letdown, right? Um, but this one, I hate to do this to Tolkien, but this one seems more intentional. It makes more sense to me. So read with me in verse 1. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, things came to the point in Jerusalem and Judea that he cast them out of his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon, and in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it, so the city was besieged to the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled, and went out from the city by night, by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden, while the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. Now the second paragraph, we read basically this exact same story right before the Book of the Nations. Remember, Zedekiah tries to sneak out the back door, and he doesn't succeed. But it's also recorded for us in 2 Kings, um, and here, verse 8, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the hands of land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. Again, Zedekiah was a vassal of the king who was in rebellion, and so it's not... Uh, not as simple as one foreign power against another. This is a, uh, a court case that's made against Zedekiah. Verse 10, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. Now, what would we stamp over all of this information in this first paragraph? Just as Jeremiah had prophesied, right? All of this is in direct fulfillment of what Jeremiah said would happen. And so it, it forms a fitting conclusion. Verse 12, in the fifth month, on the 10th day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard who served the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem and every great house burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive some of the poorest of the people and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted the king of Babylon together with the rest of the artisans. But Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, left some of the poorest in the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Okay, so first, just as Jeremiah said would happen to Zedekiah, so it happened. Second, just as Jeremiah said would happen to the temple in Jerusalem, so it happened, right? The temple is destroyed, and Jerusalem is sacked, and the people are deported, okay? 
verse 17, the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord and the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord that Chaldeans broke to pieces and carried away all the bronze to Babylon. Now, side note, remember, Jeremiah said in the days after Zedekiah was appointed king, Jehoiakim is not coming back. And neither are all the instruments of gold and silver that made up the temple. In fact, the rest of what's left will follow to Babylon. So stop waiting. Don't listen to the false prophets. This is the way things are heading. And so again here, in the destruction of the temple, is the fulfillment of the words of Jeremiah. Verse 18, they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the basins and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, which sounds very much like the Grinch, right? Not a crumb left behind of anything of even base value in the temple. Also, verse 19, the small bowls and the fire pans and the basins and the pots and the lampstands and the dishes for incense and the bowls for drink offerings. What was the gold the captain took away as gold and what was silver as silver? As for the two pillars, the one sea, the twelve bronze bowls that were under the sea, and the stands which Solomon the king had made for the house of the Lord of bronze, all these things was beyond weight. They didn't even take the time to weigh them. It was just too much. It overwhelmed their scales. As for the pillars, the height of one pillar was 18 cubits. A cubit is about a foot and a half. So, you know, these are, these are almost 30 feet high. Um, its circumference was 12 cubits, and its thickness was four fingers. Obviously, that's not the thickness of the pillar, but the thickness of the bronze, right, of wrapped around to make this pillar. And it was hollow. On its capital of bronze, the height of the capital was five cubits, a network of pomegranates, all of bronze were around the capital, and the second pillar had the same with pomegranates. There were 96 pomegranates on the sides, and the pomegranates were 100 upon the network all around. Verse 24, and the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold from the city. He took an officer who had been in command of the men of war and seven men of the city's council who were found in the city, and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land, and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the hands of Hamath. So Judah was taken in exile out of its land. Now, what happens in the next few verses is important because it tells us about the three times Babylon attacked Jerusalem. And it, it helps us lay them out. Remember, there is one that happens uh, in the days of uh, Jehoahaz, and then in the days of Jehoiachin, and in the days of Zedekiah. And so verse 28, this is the number of the people who Nebuchadnezzar carried away in the seventh year. 3,023 Judeans. In the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, he carried away captive from Jerusalem 832 persons. In the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away captive uh, of the Judeans 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600. Now, if you compare numbers here, like I said, you will find a discrepancy. But even the most persnickety of anti-Bible scholars agrees this discrepancy is because one is just counting the men and the other is counting them with their families, uh, which are two very natural ways for the uh, Israelites to count themselves. Now, here comes the most interesting thing in this whole conclusion. So ends the section that agrees with 2 Kings, and this last part is grafted on completely unique, and it ends up being the final word of the book of Jeremiah. And notice what it's about. It's about evil king Jehoiachin. 
the king who was king before Zedekiah, the one who only ruled for three months. And notice what it says. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, evil Merodach, evil there is a name and not an adjective, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he became king, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar's successor takes this old Judean king who's been imprisoned since Judea still was a thing, right? And he sets him free. In verse 32, he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king according to his daily need until the day of his death, as long as he lived. Why? No doubt, in some way, this passage has to be a glimmer of hope, right? And here's how I would suggest that plays out. Remember, although Zedekiah is the last king of Judah, he was appointed not by God, not by the Judeans, but by Babylon. Jehoiachin is the last established descendant of David on the throne. And here we find him free, and what we discover is a future. Okay. Now, it's a sticky one, because Jeremiah has made very clear that none of Jehoiachin's sons or grandsons or great-great-grandsons and so on will ever reign on the throne of David. And so when we do get to the messianic genealogy that Luke gives us, we find a detour, not through Solomon and through Jehoiachin, but through Nathan, another one of David's sons, around this line. But nonetheless, the hope for the Judeans is the same. In fact, remember, as we just talked about with the sacking of the temple, the Judeans believed, because of their false prophets, that God was going to put Jehoiachin back on the throne. Now, that's not what happens. There's no escaping the judgment the Babylonian exile, as we've talked about before. But there is something on the other side of it. And what we have in the author's hands here is probably in his day while he was still alive. Because remember, the Babylonian exile is 70 years long. So if you're older than 20, you probably don't see the end of it. But in the days of the original editor here, most likely Baruch, he goes, the crocus are in bloom. Spring is coming. And so ends the book of Jeremiah. And again, for being a tremendous book of judgment, it ends with a word of hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for this book and for the things that we have learned through it. And I'm just, I'm just a little haunted, Lord, by this call that Jeremiah makes, calling his people to come out of Babylon and I'm haunted because the book of Revelation says it too, to come out from Babylon so that we do not share in its sins. And that's striking because Peter greets us as those who are in exile, who are living in Babylon. And so I pray, Lord, that, uh, that we would live in the midst of this world, but not be of it, Lord. That we would not be the darkness or the corruption, but the salt and the light of your kingdom. 
that we wouldn't seek to be at the service of the kings of this world as if we were just a civil religion, nor would we seek the overturning of their rule, but instead we would represent another kingdom entirely, one that is impending, one that means righteousness and justice, and that we would witness as witnesses to the powers that be and remind them their reign is not eternal. They will be held accountable and that justice will be done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.